In their own words, is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you. Composer told me once he won't write unless he gets a commission. Ah. I told him that's the most ridiculous remark I've ever heard in my life. If you got something to say, you better say it. (laughs) Nobody else can say it for you. That's right. Welcome to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Today you'll meet Dr. Thomas Jefferson Anderson, who was born on August 17, 1928, in Coatesville, Pennsylvania. He is a composer, conductor, orchestrator, and educator. He earned his bachelor's and master's degrees from Penn State and a PhD from Iowa. He spoke with Penn State music education professor emeritus, Dr. Tony Leach, in TJ's Atlanta home in the summer of 2022. Life in Coatesville. Well, it started in Coatesville because I was born in 1928. Mm -hmm. And my That's father. That's when Leontine Price is born. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. I never knew that. Leontine Price is known as the first African American to gain international fame as a singer. She was actually born February 10th, 1927. Well, anyway, um, I knew her husband very well, Warfield. Ah, yes. Bill Warfield was a friend of, good friend of ours. Okay. William Warfield was a concert-based baritone singer and actor who appeared in many Hollywood films. He and Leotine recorded excerpts from Porgy and Bess, which you'll learn more about later. And uh, what used to amaze me, we saw Bill in uh, Minneapolis, and he said, I'll invite you to dinner. And so I said, where are we going? We're going to the hotel room. And uh, I never will forget it. He had a, a hot plate. That's all he had. And he cooked this fabulous dinner. On that hot plate? On the hot plate. Okay. Oh, yes, Lois and I were amazed <laughs> that he was a great musician and a great cook. Yes. Uh, he's a gourmet cook. Yeah, and, uh, Beautiful. Yeah, he was a good friend. Anyway, um, where were we going? Life before Penn State and then Before going on Penn and- State, it mm-hmm. was really not Penn State much. Because the family tradition was West Virginia State. Ah. And so I I went there, my sisters went there, I had aunts and uncles and everything that went there. So, And I, I have to tell this story because it's quite significant. Um, John W. Davis, the president of uh, West Virginia State, mm-hmm. was driving through Wheeling, West Virginia. And uh, he stopped in the late at night get his big Buick filled up with gas. And she, my Uncle Rossman waited on him. He said, boy, why aren't you in school? He said, I was in school, but I didn't have enough money. And he said, in the fall, I want you to come to West Virginia State mm-hmm. and to come as a state student. So that'll save you a lot of money. So um, Rossman went to, and when Rossman was registering, one of the persons working in the registrar's office said, boy, you know you're not from Wheeling, West Virginia. And John W. Davis happened to be going by, and he said, Wheeling, West Virginia. He kept on walking, <laughs> which 
which started which started a family tradition and made it possible for him to go as a state student and then I had uncles and aunts, my sister and her husband and just loads of us went to West Virginia State because of that one gesture alone. Okay. And uh, we found it to be a great school and a great, great place to be. Mm-hmm. And of course, how Penn State came into was at Penn State. When I graduated, I would look for graduate school, of course. And I chose Penn State. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for me, Hummel Fishburn and George Seiger, the yes. university organist, yes. Hummel Fishburn was head of the department. And a letter came from from admissions and had a whole lot of courses I should have to take. And of course, Hummel said, no, he finished an accredited school and he didn't, didn't need these courses, scratched them all out. It was a whole year. Wow. He scratched out. Hummel Fishburne. I love it. Yeah. Well, I was. Uh, I didn't see why not. You know. I mean, I finished an accredited school, yeah. and and I should be able to transfer my credits like anybody else. So Hummel Fishburne did that. Penn Staters may know Hummel Fishburne's work when they hear it. He helped write the fight song called "The Nittany Lion." The other person that had a tremendous influence on my life was the organist, George Seiger, the university organist. Now, I um, took a course in composition as elective. I wrote a terrible piece, Ode to a Steel Mill. (laughs) 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 But he was kind. (laughs) But uh, he got me started in this composition thing. And of course, when I finished, I thought about a doctorate. And, of course, uh, the main school for creativity was the University of Iowa, so I went out there and got a Ph.D. So it, uh, it, was, a, it was a good move from Penn State to Iowa. Mm-hmm. I like Penn State mainly because of the beauty of the campus. Yes, the still. Ch- the chipmunks. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're running all over every place. Yes, and, still. And, oh, yeah, still. And the squirrels. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting thing about... Penn State, it was a blessing and a curse, so to speak. What happened was that um, Fran Andrews was uh, big, the big shot in music education. That's right. And she had the MENC, Music Education National Conference, meet in Atlanta. Mm-hmm. And on that program, I was on the program, I and Jester Harrison were only two blacks on the program. Wow, Jester, okay. So I complained, mainly because you can't come to Atlanta and and ignore Morehouse Spellman (laughs) and that choral tradition in those two institutions. I mean, it was unheard of. Yes. Anyway, she got mad and (laughs) got mad at me and... So she said he, he thinks he's another Martin Luther King, which I didn't. <laughs> but anyway, wow. she uh, she was furious because it, it happened on her watch. She didn't didn't pay attention to the great musical tradition of Atlanta. Yes, black. Yes, and uh, I mean that it, it's phenomenal. No other city could match it, really. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had courses and things that could prove it. You mm-hmm. know. So we went to a meeting and I I complained about the lack of black participants in the conference. Mm -hmm. 
And then we went over to Moore House and I organized the Black Music Caucus. And to this day, it's, it's still going. Yes. And we got a president and the chapters and everything else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it was a need for white society to recognize the contribution of blacks to music education. Thank you. And they, they, they didn't want to do it. So <laughs> she got mad at me. And, <laughs> and uh, of course, I was just doing what I was supposed to do. Tell the truth. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Of course, MNC has a new name. Mm-hmm. Uh, National Association for Music Education. Mm-hmm. But uh, in their most recent publication, they were profiling the Black Caucus. Oh, wonderful. Yes, and here were wonderful photos of uh, several officers of mm-hmm. uh, the Black Caucus today. Oh, wonderful. Yes, wonderful. Sir. Well, So thank you. No. <laughs> well, uh, it was something that had to be done, and yes. it was done. You have to organize and protest Otherwise, you won't get won't be heard, you yeah. know. So if you don't, if you don't, even get, today, yeah, I know, I know, and uh, that's why it's still active. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's unfortunate that the white society refuses to recognize black contribution. Mm. On another front, I mean, I I know it so well, in that in 1907, Scott Joplin wrote the first American opera. And it was billed as the first American opera. If Scott Joplin's name is not familiar to you, you may know one of his piano works, The Entertainer. Joplin is known as the king of ragtime piano, but he wrote other forms. He wrote an opera called Tremonitia, which he self-published in 1911. In 1915, it was performed in front of a small invited audience in a Harlem rehearsal hall with a piano accompanying the singers that lined the stage. Flash forward nearly 60 years. T.J. Anderson wrote an orchestration of the full work, which was performed on two consecutive nights sponsored by the Afro-American Music Workshop of Morehouse College. This time, the singers were joined by the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra under the direction of Robert Shaw. We did the premiere in 72. <laughs> and we with Robert Shaw and some fantastic singers. Great performance. Okay. Here in Atlanta? In Atlanta. Oh, wow. We packed, we packed uh, the symphony hall. Mm-hmm. And anyway, we did the first performance of that, and it was my orchestration. Amen. Yeah, Tremonisha, yeah. And what happened is that Gunther Schuller did a version, and Bill Balcom did a version. Everybody wanted to jump on the bandwagon there. But it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> done. Yeah, it was done. And in fact, one of the interesting things is that Gunther told uh, uh, Terrence McKnight, a New York classical radio show host, that mine was the best. There was three. There were three done. Mm. And, well, I was first. I mean, it, uh, naturally. I mean, you got certain advantages in being first. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he said that, uh, that mine was the best. But anyway, American story. American music, any way you want to look at it, is very important. Mm-hmm. Met and touched it. Yes. See, they'll 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 revise Porgy and Bess till the cows come on, <laughs> but but still Porgy and Bess is Porgy and Bess. And I don't I don't believe you you should revise a composer's work. I mean, you don't you don't revise the B- Wagner. I mean, the white supremacist, you know. So leave, leave, leave Gershwin alone. 
and plague Joplin in its entirety. Mm -hmm. Don't change a thing. Don't yeah. change a thing. Yeah, I love it. And uh, they, 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 they still, to this very day, they won't touch it. They mm -hmm. won't touch it. So that's one of the tragedies of American music, mm. not dealing with the literature as opposed to dealing with with the reality of, of, of life, you know. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And you have certainly lived long enough to see all those transitions. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As you reflect on pivotal moments from your career in music, are there a few accomplishments of which you feel were crucial in your professional development? Uh, yes. Um, one, I was very much supported in Tennessee State by Edward C. Lewis. And uh, he was... He taught me at West Virginia State, so, ah. so that's the connection. Yes. And I had an assistant, um, Thomas Kane, mm -hmm. and uh, Thomas Kane became a director of BMI. And when it was time for him to be promoted to vice president, they made him offer he couldn't refuse, so they retired him. They, they wouldn't. They wouldn't move him up. Wow. He said. He said he had to take it. And, and I understand that. He said that they, they, even if they voted, they wouldn't vote him. Yeah. So he saw the writing on the wall mm -hmm. and a lovely musician and a good friend. That was a crucial moment in, mm -hmm. uh, in my life. Uh, another crucial moment was when I joined Robert Shaw. I was with Shaw three years. The first year, the Rockefellers paid the money for me to stay. Mm -hmm. The second year, Shaw put up his own money for me to stay in the third year, I became a Danforth professor at Morehouse. So those three years were crucial. Cause yes. When I came, I had the music. Uh, Ed Lewis saw to it that I was able to get time to do the orchestration and stuff for, for the opera. So when I came, I had Thomas Kane had copies of, of the orchestration and mm -hmm. everything. So we were all set. Yes. And so when we were able to do, do it in 72, we were able to do the premiere. And that was really fantastic. Yes. We had, we had the greatest singers. Wendell Whalem was the music director. And with Robert Shaw, what more do I want? You know, I got the best singers yes. in the country. Yes. And we did a fantastic performance. And that... Uh, that was that performance recorded? Oh, oh yes, okay. it's recorded but not released. Well, what's that about? <laughs> <laughs> you ask me what's that about? The Atlanta Symphony wants to release it. Okay. And they want to release it at a recording because why? It's the first opera. I mean, historically, that should be enough. But it's fantastic recording. <laughs> wow. You have to ask them. Oh, okay. <laughs> they they interested. I know they're interested because the woman who was chairman of the board told me they were interested. Hmm. And, and interesting enough, there's a professional recording done by Voice of America hmm. of the opera. Yeah. And they can just release that. Just release that. I mean, that... Uh, but they haven't. Yeah, yeah. We already got that. Wow. I mean... You know, but it's not released. Okay. And so, so you, if you wanted to hear it, you can't hear it. Mm -hmm. And for the Met not to pick it up is one of the, the pivotal moments in the history of opera in American history. Wow. Is, is, to me, it's is just un, 
Un intolerable, really. Ridiculous, yes. yeah. Yeah, well, you would think from a human perspective mm -hmm. that aspects of jealousy, racism, and just downright meanness mm -hmm. would have no place yes, in yes. the arts. Yes. But that's not the case. Yes, not the case, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I've been fighting that battle mainly for Joplin because the music is so great. It's, a, it's just a great opera. Mm -hmm. And for people not to know it and uh, and for the Met not to do it, I mean, it's just, uh, I just think it's, it's, it's a tragedy, really. Well, there is an expression from one of the most popular recent musicals on Broadway, Hamilton. The title says, In the Room where it happens. Mm. So, on one hand, because you've been an administrator, you were in the room where decisions mm. of all kinds were made. Mm -hmm. But you've also not been in that room and all kinds of decisions have been made and the music does not speak as a result of decisions mm. that are made and it does not have life mm. beyond What's on paper? But but it has truth. <laughs> it, may, it may not have life, but nothing you can do can change it. And then, as MLK said and several other people, truth crushed to the ground. Yeah. yeah. It'll rise again. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not on our watch, mm -hmm. but it will come up. Oh, yeah. There's no way in the world you can crush it forever. Mm -hmm. And in the first place, it's too great a piece. Yes. And it's just a phenomenal opera. And it's an American story. Loads of operas were written before that time by American composers, but they weren't American music. Italian operas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah we had loads of them, but, mm -hmm. but uh, Joplin set out to write his own opera and made his own remark, and he set out to write an American opera. And he advertised it as the first American opera. Mm -hmm. And they published a score in, in the um, um, Music America magazine. Yes, yes. Everything. Ni 1907. <laughs> wow, wow. Sometimes I think to myself, if I have to hear another classical symphony, <laughs> you know, for the same time, <laughs> can we just mix it up a little bit? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. well. Mm -hmm. Any other crucial accomplishments in your journey? Well, Robert Shaw, of course, championed my music. There was a festival of black composers, uh, Ollie Wilson, George Walker. A lot, a lot of them came to Spelman, and they had all black music concerts. And yes. He chose me to be his resident composer as a result of that symposium held at Spelman College. Mm -hmm. So that uh, that was a breakthrough, and that was sponsored by the Rockefeller Foundation. Wow. So that was a good breakthrough. Beautiful. And... Uh, I'm trying to think of this young conductor's, a black conductor. Roderick Cox? Cox. Yeah, Roderick, yeah. Okay. Now, Ron, Roderick has won the most prestigious conducting award you I can know. win in the world. I know. He's conducting my music now. Amen. Amen. And, and what he's doing is that he takes a string quartet of mine and puts it on string orchestra and does it that way. Yeah, yeah. Roderick Cox is a fantastic talent. Roderick Cox was an associate conductor with the Minnesota Orchestra. He left there and is now based in Berlin. 
He's been guest conducting across Europe and the United States since 2018. We can never get anywhere without recognizing talent and truth. I mean, we'll be always clinging to European names, second-rate talent, mm. and all that stuff, and uh, trying to build a reputation in the music world and all that. Mm. But you, you have to integrate. You have to integrate. There's no way in the world it's going to happen. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And the American musical scene, from a historical perspective, mm -hmm. is rich. Mm -hmm. and still pregnant with possibility mm -hmm. as far as creativity yeah. is concerned. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said earlier, you can do all kinds of things to try to contain it, mm -hmm. but then it rushes forward. Mm -hmm. it, it, it turns right, mm -hmm. as it loves to say, it bends, mm -hmm. but it's not broke. Mm -hmm. And that's just yeah. the fortitude of the people, depending on time, uh, that are committed to sharing that beyond its launch mm. so that people understand. Another influential person in T.J. Anderson's life was the French composer Darius Milhaud. Yes, I mean, I said it with Mio in Aspen. Ah. And uh, I was a student, a music student there. Now, were you, was it after the doctorate or? After the okay. doctorate, yeah. Yeah, and uh, he told me, don't get any more teachers. <laughs> that you've had enough teachers. Yeah, right? do the music. And, and, uh, and that, that, that was a good good experience. And Aspen is so, such a beautiful place, so mm -hmm. I enjoyed that. And, uh, in fact, I always wanted to teach there. I never did get the chance. Mm -hmm. But I would have loved to have taught composition at Aspen. Mm. Yes, it's funny. Opportunities come in strange ways. Yes, they like, do. Like I, I took courses and elective in composition when I was at Penn State with George Sager, and that was just just off the whim, you know. And uh, I always thought I'd be a, a ranger, ah. and so I mean I knew how to arrange, so mm -hmm. that was part of my name, my my journey. And uh, another thing is that um, I had a sense of insistence. So when I was in residence here, in other words, I went from Tennessee State to the Atlanta Symphony, mm -hmm. and then from the Atlanta Symphony, I, I went to Tufts. Ah, Boston. Yeah, different and game. that's where your career emerged. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, in order to... When I got to Boston, what happened is that that they have loads of contemporary groups. Yes, yes. To and this Dick day. Pittman with Musical Viva, I was on the board for many years, but they played everything I wrote. Boston was a great place for any composer, right. and they had so many groups. And not only that, you have so many talented young people that can play. So they they can play anything. You if you can write it, they can play it yeah. if it's playable. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, I enjoyed being there because the relationship with composers was very good. So I knew all the composers at, at uh, New England Conservatory, Boston University, and all of them. You were you friends with Daniel Pinkham? Oh yeah. Wow. I knew Daniel Pinkham. Oh my. And I knew uh, Gunther, I knew, mm -hmm. I knew all of them. Daniel Pinkham and Gunther Schuller are two of T.J. Anderson's contemporaries who composed and taught music in Boston. 
the fact is that, that everybody cheered everybody yes. on. And so, so that was good. Yeah, yes. that was very good. Okay. Very good place to be. Okay. During your life, you have witnessed a continuously growing culture and appreciation for art music created by African-American composers. Mm -hmm. As you think about your peers, as well as composers from the earlier years of the 20th century, whose contributions immediately come to mind? Well, of course, the most popular African-American composer would be William Grant Still. Yes. Loads of performances. His daughter's done a marvelous job in maintaining the legacy. And uh, that should not go by without notice. Mm -hmm. And uh, most of the black composers got known for their arrangements rather than their music. Mm -hmm. And that's unfortunate. I'm thinking about John Work and, and Thomas Dorsey, and uh, just loads of them uh, were more noted for arrangements rather than their own personal mm -hmm. music. But they do have songs that were beautifully done. Yes. So. Yeah. You mentioned Justin Harrison yes. earlier. Prolific arranger. Yes. I don't know uh, many original compositions by Justin Harrison. Amen. You know one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's Sunday morning. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, Justin was a Tufts graduate, so we had that in common. Okay. So, okay. Uh, so uh, he, he used to always say, with my nerve and your talent, we could have gone far. <laughs> and, but Jester was a good spirit and, mm -hmm. and uh, really a pioneer in many ways. He's noted for the, being the preacher and the amen and all that. Mm -hmm. But he, he was certainly more than that to the field of, of music. Yes. And he took great pride in finishing Tufts. And this was early, of course. And... Uh, he used to talk about a pair of cufflinks that the chairman of the music department gave to him. Wow. And uh, <laughs> wow. it meant a lot to Jester, yeah. Okay. But uh, he was, as I said, he, he got caught up in Hollywood. And, mm -hmm. yeah, well, he, that's why he went yeah, out there to, yeah. to do film music. Yeah, yeah. So, and then that worked, yeah, for him. Mm -hmm. You know, but uh, I think Jester could have been much more than that, but... But he's a wonderful man. Yes. Wonderful spirit, yeah. Very good. Right now, there's huge resurgence in the interest of music by Florence Price. Oh, yes. Huge. Oh, it deserves it. Oh, yeah. yeah it deserves no it, yes, yes. Florence Price was a composer born in Little Rock, Arkansas. She is the first African-American woman to be recognized as a symphonic composer and the first to have a composition played by a major orchestra. Prior to her death in 1953, she wrote four symphonies, four concertos, and choral works, art songs, and chamber music. Her catalog includes more than 300 works in all. Yeah, she's a, she's a, a bright light that's being discovered, and uh, deservedly so, and yes. we're glad to see that, yes. Yes, and then one of my peers, whom I met, Lord, 99, the American Choral Directors Association held its national convention in Chicago. And I was on that board at the time, and I invited Julius Williams oh, yeah. to come 
and uh, deal with portions of his Easter celebration mm-hmm. for orchestra choir and soloists. Mm-hmm. Julius is all over the world as a conductor. That's great. That's great. I'm glad to hear that. I knew Julius. Yes. Well, and he's been at uh, New England Service. Yes, exactly. For years and uh, at Berkeley School, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he's done a good job. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Mm-hmm. You have maintained your work ethic as a composer well into your retirement years. What advice can you share with young people who are either pursuing music composition or are considering that pursuit? Composer told me once he won't write unless he gets a commission. Ah. I told him that's the most ridiculous remark I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. If you got something to say, you better say it. Because <laughs> <laughs> nobody else can say it. Exactly. And, and if it's worth saying being, being said, you ought to be saying it. Okay. And so, I mean, that's, that's, that's what I tell all composers. Okay. And uh, we have... Uh, Loads of young composers now looking for commissions. Yes. And uh, the groups ought to take advantage of that. And this is Penn State took advantage of coming to me for commission, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, that's that's good because, because commission is one way to do it. But the composers themselves have to take the initiative. And when you don't get commission, write free pieces. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's good advice. Yeah, yeah. I always believed that. I mean, everything I wrote wasn't on commission work, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they should just write If you got something to say, you better say it. Yes. Yeah. And nobody can say it for you, you, you. know. That's right. Mm-hmm. Thank you for, for that, which leads into the work that you have created, Three Songs of Life, mm-hmm. that we will premiere next February at the uh, African American Music Festival. Is there anything that you would like to share by way of introduction for the audience that will be at that recital where your music will be featured? No. <laughs> no, I, I think music ought to speak for itself. Okay. I, I present it as, as, as songs, and they're songs that should be judged. Like any other song is judged, mm-hmm. you like it or you don't. Mm-hmm. And I think if, uh, too much depends on whether you like something or not. And you like things that you're familiar with. I mean, if, good. if very you, good, very good. Well, thank you for spending this time with with me and our future audiences and talking and sharing aspects of your journey in music. And we're hoping will continue to be meaningful in the experience of audiences and performers because your holdings are vast across all genres and um, we celebrate that. Well, I thank you, Anthony, for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the In Their Own Words podcast. Interviews and conversations with people from the African diaspora regarding their impact on American music. Join us next time when we meet jazz trombonist and educator Dalfio Marsalis. The main focus at that point was just to to learn as much as you could and to have exposure to, to great music and great art. So, you know, teenage years, 
at that point, I still wanted to play maybe in the symphony. I was more going in the direction of orchestral music. I'm Charles Dumas. Thanks for listening. In Their Own Words is supported in part by the Penn State School of Music, the Penn State Office of Educational Equity, the Flower Box, and viewers and listeners like you. Thank you.